have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. You're going to need your word this morning, and so if you did not bring a Bible or if you do not have a Bible, simply throw your hand up in the air. One of our ushers will put a Bible in your hand. Um, so just put your hand up if you need a Bible, and our ushers will give you one. If you do not own a Bible, that is our gift to you. So feel free to write your name in that Bible. Take it home. It is our gift to you that you may read it, apply it, and love the God that you see in it. Mark chapter 10, we're going to be working through verses 12, all, I'm sorry, verses 13 all the way through 31. Um, before I do that, though, let me just kind of set up where we've been so I, we can understand where we're going. We started a series through Mark several months ago, and now we've begun a new chapter in that series talking about Jesus, who is more than a Savior. Jesus more than a Savior. And so if those of us who are here in the last few weeks have known that this is not a uh, a taking away of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. Jesus is our Savior, amen? amen? Jesus did rescue us from our sins when we had nothing to offer him, but he didn't just stop there. Christianity isn't a means of punching a ticket into heaven. It is a way we live our lives in light of eternity. And so what does it mean to look at Jesus as more than someone who just saves our soul? What does it mean to live like Jesus gets the final say in our life? What does it look like for Jesus to be more than our Savior, but to be our example, to be our Lord, to be our King? And so we're going to talk about that today. And so we began Mark chapter 10 last week, and Mark chapter 10 is broken up into two or three, depending on how you count it, kind of directives to, to groups of people. And last time we looked at marriage, which really wasn't about marriage, but it was about marriage. If you, were, if you weren't here last week, you don't, you don't know what I'm saying. Check out the podcast. So God used the question about marriage to get to the heart of obedience and whether we were willing to give it all away to him or whether we were always kind of holding something back in reserve when it comes to following him. And so Mark is actually arranging these kind of parables, not in chronological order, but in thematic order. These, these things didn't necessarily happen in the order that we find them. He's pairing these things up so we could see a point. And so I think the point of verses 13 through 31 is simply this. What is the fruit of faith? What is the fruit of faith? What does it mean to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and what should that look like in our lives? What is the fruit of faith? And so before we unpack that a little bit further, let's let the Word of God provide a foundation. Read with me silently as I read aloud verses 13 through 16. People were bringing the little children to him in order that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And he said to them, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. After taking them in his arms, he laid his hands on them and blessed them. This provides the foundation because what was Jesus was teaching publicly and privately, and now he's kind of resumed his public teaching ministry, and it was a common thing in that time to bring little children to respected leaders so that they could lay their hands on them and bless them. This was not unique to Jesus. People did this to, to many other leading rabbis and teachers. But so people would bring children, say, Lord, can you just pray for my child? Can you give a blessing to my child? And really, the Bible doesn't really say why the disciples stopped the children. We're kind of making some inferences here. But reading in the best possible light, maybe the disciples were really trying to be helpful. Jesus was probably teaching some phenomenal sermon and lives were being changed, and all of a sudden parents are just bringing their kids to them, kind of interrupting Jesus. 
And so the disciples, I would assume, were trying to be helpful, saying, hey, man, Jesus is too busy for your kids. Jesus is doing more important things. And he shooed them away. And this word indignant that you see in the Bible doesn't really do the, the, the Greek word justice. This is kind of a, a fuming anger. It's one of the, it's, it's actually like a verb that has an emphasis in front of it to make sure it's like an exclamation point right here. Jesus was angry with the disciples. And then he says something startling that is really going to drive the rest of our time this morning. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. He didn't just correct the disciples. He used this again as an opportunity to point to a bigger truth. He didn't just say, hey, y'all are doing the wrong thing. Stop it. He said, those who don't come to me like a little child will never inherit eternity. Let me put it in layman's terms. If you don't receive the kingdom of God like a child, you go to hell. Real clear for everybody? That's a big, bad statement. First of all, we wasn't even talking about that, Jesus. Where'd you get that from? We were actually trying to protect you, Jesus. But Jesus uses this opportunity to teach to a bigger point that the kingdom of God must be received like a little child. Now, once again, the scriptures don't unpack that for us. What about little children must we be like in order to receive the kingdom of God? Now, we know little kids are beautiful and the angels, and we had a baby dedication today. Amen. But parents know that that's not all children are. <laughs> all right. Children are more than just beautiful little angels. I mean, innocent would be a stretch. Um, they're cute, yes, but they're also rebellious and they're selfish and all these other things like as we all are. We're all that way. A child, let me tell you the difference between a child and an adult. The only difference between a child and an adult is we know to pretend to be better. Kids don't know that they're supposed to be faking it. So they're just honest. I don't care if you had that toy. I want it. We feel that, but we know we shouldn't say that. And so kids are just the most honest ones out of all of us. And I think that's the kind of the point that Jesus is getting to is there's no guile or treachery in children. They see it as it truly is, and they say it as it truly is. And I think one of the hallmarks that we're going to see later in this passage, maybe what Jesus was getting to, is, is children have a single-minded devotion to something. It could have been nothing at all before, but today in this moment, this is the most important thing. Oftentimes, we will, we will kind of clean out uh, Ezra's toys every once in a while because I just, I just don't like having kids that are having a bunch of stuff. Like, it just makes me feel weird. And so every once in a while, we get, like, too much stuff. I'm like, hey, you know, Jenny kind of just started this first. It's like, we'll just kind of give some stuff away, and we'll kind of put stuff in back and make sure, you know, we're kind of not teaching him to be a whatever that is, a spoiled child. Um, and it's funny how in those, in those conversations, <laughs> you'll have a toy. Maybe it's the, just the newest toy at the time. That one toy would be more important than all other toys. Like, you can throw away everything. Just buy me this one thing. Like, are you sure? Yes. Perfect clarity. Absolute conviction in this moment that if you buy me a new toy, you can have everything. Right? Because they're just honest. Like, that, they really feel that way. Now, adults were like, we're logical and irrational. Like, well, we got one toy versus ten. That doesn't make a lot of sense. They're like, I don't care about them other toys. Those are old toys. This is a new toy. And I think one of the things that we see in children is there is a single-minded devotion, almost obsession with the things that they love. Some of you have children that have been holding on to, to toys and to blankets and to pacifiers and for far too long. And they don't want something like it. They want this one. So if it breaks, we've got to fix it. Don't buy me another one. I want this one. 
And so all the things that children are, once again, this isn't in the scripture, so we're kind of using our sanctified imaginations here, but this is a big enough statement where we should at least question what does Jesus mean, because this is the prerequisite for entering heaven, to entering into the relationship with God. So we should at least ask the question, what does Jesus mean? What do we need to have that children have that is going to either accept us or prohibit us from entering into heaven for all eternity? Now, I think these next few verses, Mark is going to kind of unpack part of the implication of what it means to receive the kingdom as a little child. There's a story next. Some of your Bibles may have the title heading in verse 17, the rich young ruler. How many people have that in their Bible, the rich young ruler? Um, so it's a kind of a, a combination of themes, right? In Luke, we find out he's a ruler. In Matthew, we find out he's rich. In Mark, we find out he's young. And so they kind of combined all of these things to say he's a young guy who's rich and also has some authority and power in the city, but you're not going to get that just from Mark's reading. So, transitioning from to teaching about the children, he says then, as he was sit, setting out on a journey, once again, Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem, a man ran up, verse 17, knelt down before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, all of my good gospel-believing folks, there should be some alarms going off by the question, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, he might have been thinking before we judge this man too harshly and before we throw his question out altogether, um, because we know, some of us know, that there is nothing that we can do to inherit eternal life. That's what makes the good news good news. As someone came and did for us what we can't do for ourselves, but what did he have in mind? Deuteronomy 30 verses 15 through 16 is probably what he had in his mind. A command that would have been familiar to any Jew in that day. Deuteronomy says, See, today I have set before you life and prosperity, death and adversity. For I'm commanding you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commands and statutes and ordinances, so that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God may bless you in the land you are entering to possess. So there was a common understanding that the Lord requires things of us in order to receive the blessings of his presence. And so this question wasn't altogether crazy. This was pretty much norm. Like, okay, I want what you have. I'm taught that there's something that I have to do. So what's the thing that I have to do, Jesus, so that I can inherit this eternal life? Jesus doesn't, doesn't discard the question, but kind of rephrases it and says, verse 18, why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. Jesus is not saying that he's not God. Some of you, some of the other faiths may look to this verse and say, see, even Jesus is saying that he's not God. That's not what's happening. He's asking, do you realize who you're talking to? When you say good, are you trying to butter me up so that you can get the answer that you want? Or do you recognize, like he asked Peter not too long ago, who do you say that I am? So Jesus kind of centers the question, do you realize who you're talking to? Then he answers the question, verse 19, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. He said to him, teacher, I have kept all of these from my youth. You think so? Maybe, maybe not. We'll see. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, read that again. Looking at him, Jesus what? Loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then 
come follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand, and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Y'all, money is a great servant, but a terrible master. It's a great servant, but a terrible master. Do you know in all of Scripture, this is the only person who came to Jesus and left worse off than he came? One of the only people in all of Scripture that Jesus said, come follow me. And they didn't. We were looking at what could have been the 13th disciple, y'all. Because remember what he said to Matthew and Mark and Peter? Throw down your nets, come, follow me. The exact same phrase is used right here to this man. Hey, give up, give up that stuff, but come, come get me at the end. I'm inviting you in to this thing. But he was dismayed by this demand, and he went away grieving, y'all, because he had many possessions. Before I unpack that, let's keep reading. Verses 23 through 26, then I'll stop. Jesus looked around and says to the disciples how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at this, verse 24. And again, Jesus said to them, children, how hard it is, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, let me stop here. Oh, actually, let me read verse 26. I'm sorry. They were even more astonished, saying to one another, then who can be saved? There's something that we understand now as the prosperity gospel that's, that's popular in, in America, and it's being exported around the world. And the prosperity gospel says that Jesus must bless you in accordance to your level of obedience. The more you're obedient, the more God must bless you with financial wealth with tangible physical wealth. That's what is called the prosperity gospel because the, at the center of that gospel is not Jesus, but stuff. Jesus is just the most efficient means to an end. And so I could go work and save and start a business, do all this other stuff, or I could just tithe a lot. I could come to church all the time. I could read my Bible, and then God will give me the stuff. That is not a gospel at all, y'all. Um, that is damnable. If you believe that, you do not believe in Christianity. Because the Bible does not teach that. It actually teaches the exact opposite. We're going to see in just a few moments. So most of us in this room, I don't think, would be guilty of believing the prosperity gospel because you don't hear that said here. But there is a Jewish form of the prosperity gospel that said the rich are those who are honored and favored by God. If you were poor, if you were sick, that is a curse from God. Y'all remember the story of the man who was born lame, born blind? he says, was it his sins or his parents' sins that led to this condition? Because there was a common understanding. If you were born with a defect or if you were poor, then God must be punishing either you or your parents for something. That was a Jewish kind of form of the prosperity gospel. This is why it was astonishing that they said, well, if the rich people can't get in, how, what chance do we have? Because I thought the rich were supposed to be the more favored by God. But y'all, there is a more subtle version of the kind of the reformed evangelical prosperity gospel that we believe. And that is, any opportunity to make more money must be from God. It's a little more subtle than God must do this thing. But it still says, any opportunity to make more money must be from God. Let me give you an example. I was at a church many years ago, 
And there's a couple in our church who are just serving and giving and really being grown by the community of faith. Um, he worked for a company that was well-known. i been doing really well in his job, and his job offered a promotion. And that promotion would take him, I think, to, the, to Oregon, Pennsylvania, somewhere around the West Coast. And the immediate reaction from the church was, praise God. Praise God. More money, better benefits, moving up in management. Praise God. Had a whole going away party for him and everything in this small group. And I just sat there kind of puzzled, like, did no one stop to ask, is this what God wants? Everyone assumed this is what God wants because it's more money. So surely God must want this. So there's a more subtle version of the prosperity gospel, even among us, that says any better opportunity must be from God. No one sat there and said, man, he's leaving his church. He's leaving the people who have seen him mature, who have held him accountable. His marriage is better. His soul is better. His kids are better. And now he's being taken away from that, and no one's stopping to ask the question. It could be from God, yes and amen. Or it could just be a distraction. It could just be he's a hard worker in this job, and his company rewards hard workers. And it could be from God opening up a door to send him to a new place to do a new work. But my only problem was no one stopped to ask the question. Everyone assumed that because it was more money, it must be from God. I have an opportunity to talk with a lot of church leaders around the city. One of my pet peeves around uh, with churches in the circle that I'm in now is all the deacons kind of have the same profile. They're just the richest people in the church. All the pe- people who have a status in the church, they're just the people who give the most. We associate wealth with blessings and wisdom and poverty with lack. Y'all know being poor is not a sin, right? We know this, right? So being rich is not an endorsement of your godliness. But us, like these disciples, when Jesus was saying it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, that so upended their understanding of the way the world works that they were astonished, saying one to, one to another, then who can be saved? And then one of the most famous verses, one of the most famously misused verses in all of the Bible Verse 27, looking at them, Jesus said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. Talking about salvation, y'all. Amen. It's on on graduation cards and bumper stickers. Amen. We're just really talking about salvation. It is impossible to save yourself, but I can do it because I'm God. That's what that verse is talking about. Peter does what Peter does in verse 28. He began to tell them, look. We have left everything and followed you. Jesus, no, so there's probably an awkward silence right now. And just like he's done previously, Peter's kind of filling the gap unnecessarily. No one asked him to, and he probably shouldn't. But Peter's basically saying, hey, hey, I'm not like them. Look at what we have done, God. Verse 28, verse, Peter began to tell him, look, we have left everything and followed you, Jesus. <laughs> verse 29, truly I tell you, Jesus said, there is no one who has left house or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, who will not receive a hundred times more. Now at this time, houses, brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and fields with persecutions, run back, with persecutions, and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are 
first will be last and last will be first. So let me unpack this wealth thing because I feel like a lot of folks are struggling. There is a, two categories of wealth. There's a global reality and there's the American reality. If you own more than one pair of shoes, you are considered globally wealthy. Right? So most of us in this room should heed directly the admonitions of this verse. Globally, compared to how most Christians live around the world, everyone in this room is wealthy. Now, in American context, that standard and that bar shifts just a little bit. But let me say this. This isn't a metaphor for anything. People look at this verse and they say, man, I want to make rich people feel bad. Like, this is, a, this is not a metaphor for something else. If you're rich and wealthy, you have more to distract you away from being reliant upon the Lord Jesus. And that's just a reality that you're going to have to deal with. When you pray for healing, it's okay because you're really going to see the best doctors after this prayer is over anyway. When you ask for God to provide, what you're really saying is, I don't have to ask my uncle, but I could if I really needed to. And so there's a reality in which when the Lord has, has decided to give you much of this world's stuff, which is not a bad thing and it's not a good thing, but it's a reality that says you need to be intentional about forcing yourself to rely upon the Lord because it is going to be harder for you. That's just real. There's been times in my life where I have been up and down. I, used, I was in business for most of my ministry career, kind of being bivocational. And there's been times where Jenny and I would make up stuff to do and ways to spend money. I regret all of that now. Amen. Ministry is different, y'all. Ain't no commissions in ministry. <laughs> you don't get an extra check when somebody can say, you know. But I was in sales for most of my life, and so I was used to being able to, to ramp up and ramp down. It's like, oh, we need more money. I'll just make more sales, right? Or we don't need money. I'll, I'll go in late. You know, I was used to having that flexibility, and there was a reality which in those moments of, of prosperity in my own life where my prayer life was just different, y'all. It wasn't a bad thing necessarily. It was just different. And then there was those moments where... You know, getting the, you know, the, the phone call and you look over to your wife and say, you know, we can't go grocery shopping this week, maybe next week. And those lean seasons of life where you're praying with a desperation that you haven't felt before. Maybe you've gone to the doctors and they don't know what to do. You've exhausted all that you can. You get to the end of your rope and you realize, God, if you don't come through, I have no plan B. And your prayer life is different in those seasons, isn't it? There's an old story of a church trying to raise money for a building project. And they've been raising money and after, you know, months and months and months, really not hitting their goals, not really growing. And finally, they called a meeting of all the deacons and said, hey, we're going to have a time of prayer. And the lead deacon says, man, has it come to that? Has it come to prayer? You know, are we that bad off or now we've got to pray? Right? But that's the reality, right? You know, prayer is kind of the thing we do at the end of it. After we've tried everything, prayer is what we try last, but... What Jesus is talking about, it is harder for us, y'all, because we live comfortable. And when the Lord tells us to take up our cross and follow him and die daily, we don't even have a concept for that. Because everything in our life is soft and comfortable and inviting. And so it's harder. It's harder. But what does this have to do with the fruit of faith, y'all? Remember how we started about the children? If you must be like a child... In order to receive the kingdom of heaven. Do you see what Jesus did earlier in the passage in verse 24? How he called, Jesus said to them, children, how hard it is. You see Jesus tying back this language of childlike faith in that moment. Here's what I think Jesus is doing. I said earlier that one of the markers of a child is a single-minded devotion to something. 
I love this thing to the neglect of everything else. And that's the fruit of faith, y'all. The fruit of God working in your life is that single-minded devotion so that whether it comes with riches or with poverty, with health or with suffering, it doesn't matter if it gets Jesus at the end. There are two things about our Christian faith that we need to know, and I'll close with this. There are the facts of our faith in Jesus, and there's the fruit of our faith in Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4 lays out beautifully the facts of the Christian faith. Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel, the good news I preach to you, which you received on which you have taken your stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold on to the message I preach to you unless you believed in vain. So what is this good news? For I pass on to you what was most important, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised, and on the third day, according to the scriptures, he was raised. Those are facts, y'all. Most informed atheists don't even deny that Jesus died and came back to life. It's just what that means now we disagree about. These are facts that Jesus died for your sins because your life was not worthy enough to account for all the wrong that you have done. The only blood that was worthy was Jesus' blood. And that was all predestined by the scriptures. Micah 5, 2, the book of Isaiah, the passages in the Old Testament, thousands of years before Jesus came, God said what he would do and he did it. And then he was raised to life. It's one thing to die as a good man for others, but it's another thing to come back to life showing that you were God the whole time. Those are facts, y'all. Now, what is the fruit in your life of believing those facts? What should it look like? Is it just, oh, yep, can you nod your head and say, yes, I believe that? Is that enough? The book of James says no, for even the demons believe these things. So how do you know that God is at work in your life? One of my favorite verses on the fruit of the gospel in our lives is Matthew 13, 44. The shortest story in Scripture says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar? Why is this one of my favorite verses about the fruit of the gospel? Because what does it say? Does it say that, man, he, he had to have the stuff, and so he went weeping and moaning to sell his stuff so he could buy the field? No, it says in his joy, he sold everything that he had so that he could get a treasure that was worth more than everything he had. That is the kingdom of God, y'all. When you see Jesus as more valuable than everything, as bigger and more important than everything, it does not matter what Jesus comes with as long as it comes with Jesus. Sufferings? Okay. Persecution, okay. Lack, okay. Poverty, okay. Riches, okay. Family, okay. Barrenness, okay. Crying, okay. Laughter, okay. It doesn't matter as long as Jesus comes with the deal. Single-minded devotion. And that is why Jesus told this man to sell all that he had. It's not a, a rule for Christians to be poor. That's not a rule for Christians to sell all they have. He wasn't saying if you want to earn salvation, do these things. Because he loved him, he told them the truth. The truth is you don't have your stuff. Your stuff has you. And so because I love you, because I want to see you free from the idol of stuff, get rid of it. Get rid of it. But then follow me. 
how many of us, we, I, I, I wrestle with this passage because, like, how can he be standing in front of Jesus and let stuff get in the way of Jesus? And the Holy Spirit does what the Holy Spirit does and shows me mm, before you point the finger outward. So I do this almost every single day of my life. I let stuff get in the way of following Jesus. I let fear get in the way of following Jesus. I let other people's opinions of me get in the way of following Jesus. I let compromise get in the way of following Jesus. Every day I am this rich young ruler. Not as young, not as rich, not as much of a ruler. But just as much of a man who is held captive by things in my life that gets in the way. So what do we do with this passage, y'all? We give it all away. He didn't say, hey, you're too rich, give away some of your money so that way you're poor. He says, give away everything and follow me. What does it look like for you to operate into reckless obedience? What does it look like to just not compromise with sin? To not say, oh, a little bit is okay, but too much is when I draw the line. What would it look like for you just to live your life with a reckless level of obedience? That God, I will, I'll get rid of anything that gets in the way of following you. Even if it's not a bad thing. Money is not a bad thing. TV in and of itself is not a bad thing. Friends is not a bad thing. Family is not a bad thing. Good things. But those are all things that can get in the way of you following Jesus, aren't they? So what would it look like just to give it away? Not to moderate or to compromise or to try to figure out a new equation for life, but just to give away all the things that get in the way of following Jesus. Even if Jesus puts those things back. That's the call of the scripture, y'all. That's what it means to inherit eternal life. That's what it means to walk into the fruit of salvation. Not just believing facts. These things are facts and they are great and glorious truths, but those truths applied to our lives should bear fruit. That fruit should look like a single-minded devotion, like a childlike faith that says, Jesus, all I want is you. You can have everything else. You can give me anything else. It won't distract me. You can make me rich. You can make me poor. It don't matter. As long as I have you, Jesus, that'll be enough. Would you commit to praying with me this week for that? I mean, maybe you're already there. Praise God, I'm not preaching to you. you you're killing it. But maybe you're like me and said, man, I struggle being, having a single-minded devotion. There are things that I want that are not Jesus. And I don't know if that's okay. Can you pray with me this week to say, God, can you just root out anything in my heart, anything in my life that's getting in the way of following you? Because I want a childlike, single-minded devotion to following you because you are worth it. Would you join me this week praying for that? Join me now praying. Pray with me now, church. Father.